You listen to 247 Real Talk. This is your host once again, Julian Perry. And for this episode, I will be having a very interesting and long overdue conversation about immigration. I'll be right back with my guest, Mr. Winston Taylor. So good evening, Winston. Welcome to 247 Real Talk. Thank you for joining me this late time on uh, Wednesday, June 30th. It's about 11.21 p.m. on the East Coast, and glad to have you with me. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to, glad to be here. So we're going to have a very interesting conversation. I know it's going to be interesting before we even have it, because with all the topics that I cover on the Real Talk, immigration is one that some of my listeners have asked me to approach, and I've never been able to get someone um, on the show that has such you know, enough background knowledge to have a really engaging conversation over a wide spectrum. So why don't you start by introducing yourself to my audience and telling us a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah, as you said, uh, my name is Winston Taylor. Um, in my previous life, I worked um, essentially with a company that provided services to the government. Um, I have to be a little careful on that because I don't work there anymore. So I have to kind of keep everything separate. But um, in that job, I worked with ICE, Border Patrol, uh, CBP. So I was pretty heavily involved within a lot of the immigration issues that have been going on for the last few years. Um, I've since moved on to another career, but I also volunteer for a a group called AVIAC, which essentially is kind of a a research group that's... um, essentially advocates for exactly what I'm doing is basically spreading the word about immigration and talking about what the immigration laws are and how they relate to really just everyday life. Uh, They try to be as impartial as possible and just kind of present the facts and present the law and present a lot of the stories that kind of go go ignored in the the mainstream media. So that's that's what I do. That's why I'm here. Great, great. And I want to preface what what we are about to discuss for my audience as making that distinction that you know it, it depending on where you are or where you or if you're someone dealing with immigration issues there are a lot of opinions as to what things should be and how they should go but what we will be discussing is the law not what right. what we are what we think because even for you and I our opinions may differ from the law but it's important for people to understand what the law says you know, to be empowered and to know which direction to, to go in. So having said that, I want to start off with something that was a hot topic um, for the last couple of years. It hasn't been, actually recently, maybe the last couple of weeks, I think the the current vice president flew down to the border, but it wasn't. it's not as in your face now as it was a couple of years ago, but it's still what I would consider a critical topic, and that is what happened with our borders in Mexico and the, um, and forgive my terminology, but the hoarding of of people and the separation of parents and children and now um, 
some parents I heard being allowed to enter the United States, but their children were held at the border. And so there's this, this whole debacle that no one seems to be able to solve. If you're a parent and your child is at the border, um, and, and again, this is a complicated question because the parent could be here now on some sort of uh, immigration status that's not permanent, but what legally can be done even in an effort or a successful effort to reunite them with their kids? Well, that's a tough one uh, because if, I will say if the parent has some type of legal status in the United States, then there really shouldn't be an issue with them bringing their child in along with them. So whether you're you know, a tech worker or whether you're you know, a visitor, whatever it is, whatever your immigration status is, as long as it's legal, you should have no issue bringing your, your children with you, right? There, there are plenty of visas for children of a particular immigration status. Um, but obviously what you're talking about, the majority are essentially children that have been smuggled to the border. But hold on, hold uh, on, Winston. I, I, you said something very important. And I know this is a a hot topic, so I want to make sure I give sure. my view, my listeners, you know, as much information and answers as we could. Because you touched on something, and you said, if a parent has a legal status, um, there should not be difficulty for them to bring their kids into the United States. Now, is my assumption correct? And, and you know, tell me if I'm wrong. That what you're referring to would be that parent traveling here and bringing their child in for vacation, as opposed to that parent traveling here as a citizen and bringing their child in and deciding that their child stays with, while you know at that point they have the child themselves has no legal status. Well, I'm not sure if I if I understand what you're asking, but. Let me give you an example. If if a family decides to travel to the United States just for a vacation, right? There there generally aren't any limits on what are called like B two visitor visas. And if you travel from a handful of countries, you don't need a visa ahead of time. So you essentially just fly to the United States with your passport, and your entire family gets let in without any issue. Now that's for for visitors, right? For essentially for pleasure travel. Uh, now if someone is coming in on a somewhat permanent basis, let's say like a worker visa, right? Let's say if someone is admitted legally as a worker or legally as a student, there are additional visas that would allow that person to bring their, their child in. Now it's, it's not a guarantee. It's not a hundred percent, but if the visa is for, for the most part, a permanent or semi-permanent uh, timeframe, you know, like a, a temporary worker, maybe, they they may not be able to bring their child in, but if it's a if it's a long term legal status, then yes, there would be an additional visa class for a child, right? So that's that that's kind of what I think is being lost in a lot of these stories is that you know when you come in with a visa, you're admitted legally, and almost always you can bring your family as long as it's permanent or semi permanent, but the majority of kids that I think you're referring to, like I said, are their parents don't have visas and neither do the children. So they're kind of in that weird limbo. And that's the majority of kids that you see on TV. The majority of the issues that we're talking about are kids that 
and parents that don't have any legal status. That's where most of the issue comes from. Right. And, and, that and that's sense? why I separated the two because I'm the, the first one, we'll get to the one with the, with both the parents and the children illegal, but I touched, I, I can't uh, circle back to what you said because I found that interesting because from what I know, historically, um, uh, you know, generally speaking, at least for many years ago, even a parent that was permanent that was bringing a child under the age of 21, even for vacation, I mean, that probably added to the immigration problem because usually with the parent being a permanent resident or a citizen and, it's, and the child coming in, there was, I think in many cases, there was no intention for them to have the child return. Right. And see, that's where it gets a little bit tricky is, and I want, I want to kind of speak in generalities because for one, there are hundreds, if not thousands of different classes of visas. Um, and there are different variations of particular visa classes, right? So there are so many variations to this, but if let's say, let's just say hypothetically, right? You have someone that comes into the United States, they are a temporary worker and they work for, you know, IBM or whomever, right? So they're here legally, they're working for IBM, their entire status is legal. They're adhering to the terms of their visa. Now, let's say they have a child overseas and they come to visit, right? Now that child, when they come to visit, that's just a temporary status as essentially like a, a vacation, right? So Generally, if a child comes to visit as a visitor, they're entitled to six months. Sometimes you can extend it longer. But if you come in as a, as a visitor, which is generally called a B2 visitor, that's a temporary status for essentially just vacation or for pleasure, right? You're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to go to school. Um, you know, you're not allowed to do pretty much anything other than just vacation, right? So what happens a lot of times is, like you said, the, a family member will get admitted legally in some form, and then they bring the rest of their family in some other way, right? Whether it's, you know, they get smuggled in or whether they get a visitor visa. And, you know, the reality is a lot of those people that come in as visitors, they never leave. And that's where, I know that, I mean, that's a whole other issue. We could probably do another show on for sure. But when you have, when you get admitted as a visitor, the promise is you come in as a visitor, you have a vacation and then the agreement is you return to your country within the set amount of time that you agree to. A lot of people don't do that. And then they try to fix their papers. You know, I'm using air quotes. They try to fix their papers because the, what the law says and what the reality of the immigration system actually are, are two different things. And it's, it's unfortunate for people that are waiting overseas because the system is now catering to people that are kind of cutting the line. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but it's part of the bigger issue. So there's no, technically there's no, well, let me back up. The system wasn't designed to allow someone to come in as a visitor and then transition into a permanent status. That wasn't what was intended of the system. However, over the years, Congress, which writes immigration law, Congress, which is the one that is also responsible for writing um, the number of visas that are created, right? So Congress could increase the number of visas. They can decrease it. They can create new categories. So Congress is responsible for writing immigration laws like that. So if you come in as a visitor, over the years, Congress has added laws to essentially create waivers for people 
to adjust their status. So because Congress has written laws to allow people to kind of exploit that loophole, the practice is someone gets in the country legally or not, and then everyone else just comes whenever they can, and then they hire a lawyer and they try to fix their their papers, even though that wasn't really the way the process was intended. So it's not, and I'm saying that because it's not a smooth transition and a lot of people don't seem, they they don't understand that it wasn't really meant to be that way. So that's why the system doesn't function smoothly because Congress wrote laws that kind of circumvent what the intent was of the law in the first place. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah, it's, it's, to be honest, it's kind of a mess um, because I, per, and let me say this just so people understand the immigration system and the visa system was designed to give everyone around the world a fairly equal shot of, coming to the United States. So, you know, there, there are visas for Northern Hemisphere, visas for Southern Hemisphere, there are visas for students, you know, for tech workers, for agricultural workers. Um, you know, there's a special class for spouse of agricultural worker. You know, there are all these different categories. And the idea was that everyone from around the world, from every country, should have an opportunity to immigrate to the U.S. Uh, and that was the intent. But when you have people that are trying to kind of cut in line, as it were, it tends to push the people to the back of the line that we're waiting to kind of follow the process as it's written in the law. So it, the system is broken in that way in that it's not functioning the way it was designed. And we're kind of, we're taking resources away from long-term legal applicants to kind of process people that are trying to for lack of a better term, to kind of cheat the system, you know, because like I said, the system wasn't designed to come in as a visitor and then just stay. Or right. to come and in I want to, I want to, um, I want to interrupt you there first for a second, because I want to yeah. play a certain amount of emphasis on that too, because um, I know of a few people who, and I think it's one of them is a family member actually, who don't live in the United States, who have been sponsored, have been waiting for years and even even this year, they got notification from the U.S. Embassy in there, in you know where they are, that they should. I think the notice they got was that they will hear something within 120 days, and then right. at about the 90 day point, they got another notice to say it'll be delayed another you know 60 days. And right. there's a whole lot of frustration there because families are separated, and these are families who are trying to do it legally. And, right. and and so that's why it's so important, you know, what you said and what you explained is so important because we know a few things. One, the immigration, there's, there's several types of, of families that, that migrate. And, and yeah, you have those that, you have adult parents who sponsor adult children. You have, um, you know, spouses and, and, and you have all these different categories and they, they go by, I think, class and the, the further away you are from the immediate relationship, I think the longer the wait is. So, you know, to wait that many years, and as some people have waited over 10 years, I'm talking about. Um, right. And then to know that you're further being delayed because of this other immigration issue that's going on, that while, while, while it violates what the rules are, it's become a crisis on its own because, number one, and everybody, I think, would agree with me, irrespective of, and that is the children that are involved. Right. 
I mean, and, and that is, you know, and, and and that is how we started out this conversation because like at the border, I believe, and I don't know the number off the top of my head, I stopped following it because having children of my own, I, you know, it became very painful to think of children being, you know, very young children being ripped away from their parents. I'm not sure why that was done, understanding that the parents were illegal. Because I think some of these scenarios where they got the, from what I'm understanding and the legal cases I've heard of, well, the, the parents did come in with the children, but at some point they separated them. Right. And I can, are you speaking about um, under the Trump administration, how the issue, there was a... Yeah, that massive thing. issue, yes. Yeah. I can I can explain that. And Please do. It, it's, a touchy, <laughs> it's a touchy subject, but part of the reason that the children were separated was one, it was, it was meant to be a deterrent because there was a, there was a settlement. It was called, it's generally called a Flores settlement, which basically said that um, ICE cannot hold family, family units longer than uh, I want to say, I believe it's 30 days. I have to double check on that, but it was a short period of time. So there was an incentive for families and the, the smugglers know this. And this is, I want to talk about something else too, but yes, the smugglers know this. And this is what the smugglers tell the families is to say, if you come as a family, you can't be held for 30 days, or you can only be held for 30 days, if not less. And because you don't have any criminal history in the United States, you're going to be let go almost instantly. So there was a built-in incentive for, for families to cross. But then what started happening was the smugglers on the south side of the border, basically, were, they were recycling children. So they were taking children that were unrelated to people, and they're basically creating a fake family. And they would send these groups across of people, you know, a male, female, and a kid or two with no identification, right? There was no way to know who any of these people were because they have no record in the United States. Right. We don't know what country they came from. So the smugglers caught on to this and were sending kids across with families because they knew it would allow the adults to get released. And then what would happen was that child would get picked up on the other side of the border, would get driven back into Mexico, and then sent through with another family. Ah. So that was one of the issues. And then... Um, ICE and Border Patrol and CBP started to take DNA and fingerprints of families and the children to kind of to eliminate that. But part of the other reason that children and adults were separated was you have to detain people at the border that cross illegally for a, at least a day or two at, at a minimum because you have to fingerprint them. You have to make sure they don't have any extremely contagious diseases. You have to essentially identify them and you have to start the process for an eventual immigration hearing. But the fact was, and still is, the United States does not have enough family facilities to house family members together in a way that people would, would like to see. And the other part of it is because most of the detention centers were built to house individual females and individual males, and really they weren't built to house children, it, it, would, have been, it would have been a huge risk to put you know, families or young children in with adults when you don't know who anyone is, right? You know, I, there are a lot of criminals cross the border, right? Not, a, not every legal alien is a hardcore child molester. However, they do cross the border illegally, right? So the, the decision that CBP and the government had to make is, do we risk putting children in a group setting with adults that we, gen that we really don't know who anyone is? So if we put a child in with a child molester inside of a detention facility and that child gets molested or raped, well, now what, right? That's in my mind, that 
having a child get raped because you decided to keep a, a family together is a hundred times worse than separating people until you figure out who they are. Right. So it, it was a bad situation all around the, the cartels, the smugglers were exploiting the system because they knew how to manipulate U S law. They told the people on the South side of the border, if you cross as a family, you're going to like, you're going to like, excuse me, you're going to be let go in a short amount of time. And you probably won't be deported for at least a couple of years. So it was kind of this confluence of, of factors that created that problem. And like I said, the government just it wasn't prepared to handle hundreds of thousands of people crossing the border illegally at, at any one time, right? It, it, the facilities just don't exist. So it was kind of one of those things that a decision had to be made. And it, <laughs> from the outside, it, it didn't look good. But if you understand that you're risking putting children in with child molesters, and it's like, uh, to be fair, I'd make that same decision. If I have to separate a family for a couple of days to prevent a kid from potentially being molested because we don't know who that person is, then I'm going to make that same decision. Because, you know, once that happens to a child or a woman for that matter, or even a man, you know, once you're sexually assaulted, you can never undo that. That's, that's such a horrendous thing to have happen to anybody. So. And you know, I would, yeah, I would, done, I would agree with that decision. You know, if, um, in it's in in that sort of um, absolute sense, but I think that what was compounding it is, and like you said, you know, in in their effort to to identify the you know the biological relationships, there's something seemed to I guess with the volume something went extremely wrong because eventually, I think there was some admission that they couldn't they couldn't find the parents. And right. and it seemed like in some cases they 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 admitted that the parents were once there when they were separated, but there was something that went wrong where they wherever they because I as I understand it and you'll be able to correct me they did take some parents and send them to different places within the United States, and then the children were to follow, but they something went wrong with the with the paperwork or, or the system that was used and now they could no longer link the parents back to the kids or, or to you know where the kids were right well here's here's the issue with that is a lot of times the people that are crossing the border they don't have an address inside the United States so a lot of times they're given an address by the smugglers and say here's an address when you, when you talk to Border Patrol, tell them this is where you're going to live. So a lot of times they couldn't find the people crossing the border because they gave a bad address, right? They didn't, either they didn't know the phone number, they gave a bad address. And the other part of it too was a lot of times these parents, either what would happen was the parents were either in the country already illegally and they sent for their children, right? Or a lot of times the parents sent their kids ahead of time because they felt like their, their kids had a better chance of getting across the border. So they would send their kids separately to say, go live with a distant relative, right? But oftentimes the distant relatives were also illegal. So there were a couple, the issue with a lot of these stories is the first story that gets reported generally is the sensational headline meant to grab your attention. It's not really based on the actual facts of, of, this, of the case, right? And a lot of times there were a few hundred parents that essentially told ICE or Border Patrol, uh, yeah, we're not going to come get our kids because we don't want to get deported. So, you know, a lot of these cases, 
were essentially parents either using their kids as a way to get into the country or just simply saying, I'm going to send my kids into the United States and that's it. I'm going to give them a better life and I don't want to risk getting deported. Uh, Because the reality is, if you are inside the United States and you know that your child crossed the border, how hard would it be to call 911 and say, where's the nearest ICE office, right? Or, you know, what is the number to ICE, right? Like, ICE has offices all over the country. They have phone numbers everywhere. So it's hard for me to believe that the people that were handling these kids just basically said, ah, we don't care. We don't, we're just going to let you go. Or we don't care what your parents say. Like there was more to it than that. And the people that I talked to kind of backed that up. They said, you know, the parents either gave us a bad number. They gave us a bad address. The parents refused to come get their kids or the kids weren't actually, they didn't actually belong to those people or, this happens occasionally too, is the people that are supposed to receive the kids end up being, you know, hardcore criminals. They end up being child molesters. They end up being, you know, felons. And, you know, the U S government can't in good conscience turn over a child to someone who has a serious criminal record because that, that's a whole nother issue. So, so what was the, know, what was the two, go ahead. Go ahead. No. So what was the difficulty? Because, I'm sitting here in, in um and you have the wheels in my head turning, you know, faster than I can control them because so I think that, you know, my my dear departed mother always said every story has three sides. And the thing about it is that I think in a lot of the uproar that was the result of what happened to the border, I think a lot of it could have been diminished by someone providing the explanation that you are on my podcast, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad that my podcast is a mechanism that a lot of people like myself will hear other aspects to the issues at the border. Not that we're, you know, not in an effort to sway our opinion or anything, but to in an effort to pass along the truth. And and you know, things like uh, and I and I, you know, I 100 percent believe in the stories that you were told and and the things that you know because I can see that I can see the scenario where. The child's at the board, the parent got let in, the parent's illegal, and they figure if I go back to the board to get my child, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna hold me and they're gonna send us both back. It's a trick, so I'm not going. Right. Um, the one that's really appalling to me is the kids being used, although I know it's not beyond the cartels in Mexico, the kids being used to to because of the the sort of loophole that would allow the family just the family that's together to to get through our system faster and into the United States, and then they basically right take the children and take them, recycle them. Right. And there, there are two other things I want to add to that. There's another part to the the children that a lot of people are are not talking about, but part of the, part of the reason that this was an issue that really could have been totally avoided is there are two different types of immigration status. One is asylum and one is refugee status. They're, they're similar in a lot of ways, but the, the, the main difference is that when you get to a port of entry, you essentially claim asylum, right? However, every one of these people could have gone to the American embassy, the American consulate in their country and applied for refugee status or something equivalent. So the idea that the only way these people could get to America was to essentially run to the border or to get smuggled to the border, you know, that this should have never happened because there is a process in place. You know, there's an American embassy and consulate in I think every country <laughs> and a lot of countries have two or three, you know, Mexico is a huge country and they have, uh, there's a, there's an embassy in uh, Mexico city and there's a consulate in Tijuana. So 
the smaller countries obviously probably only have one, but there are immigration officers in these local countries that can deal with this. So the idea that everyone had to rush the border was kind of a, a red herring anyway. But as far as the kids go and the families, there's a, there's another part to this. And there's a company, and this story just was being reported on a few weeks ago. There's a company called Southwest Key, right? And there, there, there are multiple versions of this company. But I've talked to, I've been able to talk to some Border Patrol agents over the years. And recently, a few of these guys told me on separate occasions, they were telling me, and they, I didn't ask them this. This was just something that they relate to me separately without even me asking for it. But the Border Patrol agents that work the border in, on, the, on the southern border were telling me that the aliens that they were encountering were telling them, the Border Patrol agents, that there were people in, in their country. It was generally like Guatemala, um, Honduras, and El Salvador. But they were, the, the aliens were saying that we were paid $500 to come to America, right? And when I heard this, I'm like, well, where's that coming from, right? I didn't, it didn't make sense to me. Like, well, who would, be, who would do that? Who would pay someone $500 to essentially put themselves in a horrible position, right, with the coyotes and the smugglers, right? How would that happen? Well, that's where Southwest Key comes in. I want, and you guys can look this up, but this company, Southwest Key, is a nonprofit. The people that are on the nonprofit, that are on the board of directors of this nonprofit, Southwest Key, own other companies that provide services back to Southwest Key. And these guys get these massive contracts to administer to the massive inflow of people coming to the border. So these children are being exploited on multiple levels. And unfortunately, it's a lot of companies and organizations within the United States that get paid huge sums of money, essentially to incentivize people to come to America. Because what happens is the government is so overwhelmed by all these people crossing the border that they have to sign agreements with these companies to build shelters, to provide food, to provide clothing, to do all these things. So the government is just throwing money at these companies like Southwest Key. And in turn, what Southwest Key is doing is they're paying, they're taking that money that goes to their nonprofit. They're pay, they're signing contracts with other companies that are for profit that they also own, right? So they're signing inflated contracts to provide food and clothing and shelter. And essentially what they're doing is they're, they're housing the children, they're housing the families as long as they need to, to maximize their payments. And essentially once the money runs out, once the government says, okay, you know, the immigration case is closed or they're getting deported or whatever it is, these companies like Southwest Key just wash their hands and say, okay, see you later. Have a nice day. So these people, the companies like Southwest Key make tens of thousands of dollars per person to house and shelter and feed them. And that's where the money's coming from. That's why this problem is so out of control is you have companies that are just exploiting very poor people that have very little education a lot of times that don't know any better. $100. Because if you're a company like Southwest Key, you're going to make ten dollars or $15,000 on the back end once that person gets to America. So you can make that investment. You can tell someone, here's 500 bucks because I'm going to make $10,000 off you in three months when you get to America. And that's another part of this that doesn't get talked about that I think is really important because it really, it explains why things are so out of control, right? Because nobody wants to see children separated from their families, right? Nobody, nobody wants children to be smuggled into the United States when one, there's a legal process. And two, you know, 
I, I really believe a lot of the people that are coming across the border, I really believe they don't know what they're doing. I really believe a lot of them think that this is just a way to come to America. I, I think, I really believe that. I don't think they know that they're breaking the law, which is unfortunate because they don't know that there's a legal alternative that is way safer and way cheaper. And, you know, it's, I know it's off topic a little bit, but it, it really, I think it explains why things are the way they are. And, you know, what's sad is a lot of these companies like Southwest Key, they donate to a lot of these politicians. So the politicians have an incentive to let this problem rage out of control because now they can write laws. Now they can sign contracts to provide money to these companies that essentially give them kickbacks when they get these massive contracts. And, you know, Southwest Key isn't the only one. There are plenty of other ones, but they were just the one that that was the one company that's been in the news, you know, recently. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's one of the reasons why, you know, it's always hard to talk about enforcing immigration law because you, it brings up a lot of negative connotations. Right. But. But know, is, it, it's is, not a, a, is a company like that, uh, is there any way to stop the company like that from operating from, you know, from, from being in that type of business? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. And I don't know that there is because they're, they're operating. First of all, they, they have the shield of we're protecting the poor migrant children, right? We're protecting the vulnerable families, right? So nobody really wants to touch it because nobody wants to be the guy that says we took away funding from the company that's giving shelter to poor migrant children. And what, what's really infuriating is the companies that are doing this, you know, they're, they're operating their nonprofits legally, right? They're essentially operating in a legal manner, right? There's no requirement when the government signs these contracts, there's, there aren't many requirements, especially when it's an emergency, that these, these nonprofits spend their money in an efficient way. So whether it was intentional or not, I don't know. But because it, everything is done so haphazardly, you have companies like this that can take advantage of it. So I think the answer, I mean, I don't know if there's a way to do it today, but you would have to create laws that say you cannot... <laughs> You cannot be on the board of a nonprofit and be on the board of a for-profit company that benefits from a contract given to a nonprofit company, you know, given in an emergency like this, right? right. You'd have to write laws to say you can't profit off of this. Uh, but I don't know that anybody's willing to do that. And that's, that's really sad. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, as I said, it's very enlightening because, you know, not, I didn't, I, you know, I was paying attention, not, not, you know, um, daily, but quite often to what was going on with the border and, mm -hmm. you know, during that crisis that was highlighted. And, you know, like I said, a lot of this, a lot of these details that you're sharing now, um, I don't know that they, they take away the sting of it. Now, I don't think that they do at all, but they help to, uh, I, I think, are, are, are pacified if it's just a little bit because, I mean, on one level, understand what, you know, like, for instance, I want to go back a bit to what the cartels are doing with the children, because that, that really infuriates me. But right. I'm assuming that not all these children are orphans. So, you know, at some point, maybe the cartel is, is, is paying the parents or whatever to, to, for the use of the children. 
And that, you know, that, that, that is a whole other issue if, you know, that it can almost be a whole other podcast because, you know, um, you know, that, that sort of, uh, you know, I would almost begin to think like, well, the only way that we can stop this or, or make someone think differently on the other side of the border is, is to hold these children and, you know, to obviously stop this from happening, but then we're faced with a bigger dilemma as to what to do with them. And like you said, we don't even know who they are. Right. Um, in terms and of the other um, thing you mentioned about the embassy and consulate in these countries, I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure from, uh, from if, if we remove the, the smuggling part of it, um, I think there are high volumes of people you know, especially from places like Mexico, um, looking to migrate to the United States in an effort to make money in farming and sort of things that jobs that mm-hmm. they're, you know, and, and take money back. And I, I'm not sure that even the embassy or consulate in, in, in Mexico would be able to handle the volume if everyone came through that way either. Um, and well, I, which I'm just saying that to say that, that, you know, people might, you know, people might choose the alternative and take the risk because of the, the amount of time they have to wait. Right. Well, you see, that's, that is, that's an issue with, with Congress is like I said, Congress is responsible for writing laws, right? Congress could write a law that says, if you're a farm worker, you could present yourself at the border and, you know, we can give you this farm worker status, right? Congress can write essentially any immigration law that it wants to handle whatever the issue is, but Congress refuses to, to write laws that way. Um, and the other part of it too is, you know, this isn't a real popular thing to say, but the United States does have a border and it does have sovereignty just like any other country. Right. And every country on the planet has a right to determine the amount of people that it lets in, you know, legally. So, you know, yes, maybe our current system couldn't handle the number of people, but at the same time, we do have to realize that there, there is a finite number of people that we can admit into the country. And, you know, as it stands now, the United States admits, depending on the year, but the number fluctuates anywhere from 500,000 to almost a million people a year. Uh, you know, and that's, that's legally, right? So we already take in close to a million people, you know, in some years, you know, legally. And there were programs in the past, like you're talking about, there was one called the Bracero program that essentially we allowed temporary workers, mainly from Mexico, um, but they were seasonal farm workers. You know, this was a program that existed. So we've done it in the past. Um, There's no reason we can't do it again. It's just for lack of, there's a lack of desire to do it. And I think it comes down to the fact that the politicians, the big businesses, and a lot of these nonprofits, I'm saying in air quotes, <laughs> that are kind of behind the scenes, I think they benefit too much from the system we have now that's out of control, right? People are, people are making money off of exploiting the kids. They're making money off of exploiting the farm workers, you know, people that don't have legal status, you know, generally work for less money. So you have all these different groups that have a huge finan- financial incentive to keep everything the same. And it, it's really unfortunate because the people that end up getting hurt are the legal immigrants that just came here because they're the, if you're a legal immigrant to the United States, you know, you may not speak English, you may not be established, you know, you may have just started a career, you know, whatever the case is, if you're new to the country, you're 
starting over at some level, but yet you have to compete with other people that are willing to work for less money, you know? So it, it, there really are all these second and third order effects to this that people don't really realize. And a lot of people are, a lot of people are being taken advantage of, um, whether it's the kids, whether it's, you know, recent legal immigrants, uh, you know, it's, it's a real mess all around. Well, one of the things in terms of the, the job, the people competing with people who are willing to work for less money, um, I am. I have a different you know, opinion on that one because a lot of times too, I think the jobs that the people from Mexico come in and the the jobs that they're willing to do and under the conditions they're willing to do with many people, you know, many you know people from the United States or people you know people of a certain caliber are not willing to do it. Well, I think you're right, but that is a problem that could be fixed, right? We could fix that with, you know, Congress again failed. They failed to create a visa for a particular class of people that is willing to work, you know, for a particular wage. Now I would kind of push back a little bit on that saying, I think, I think it's unfair to import poor people from another country to do a job at a less than livable wage. I agree with that. I think you're, I think you're exploiting. It does two things. It, It exploits the people that are, the most vulnerable, right? Because people that don't have any legal status generally don't complain, right? right? They generally don't file workers' comp, right? So I I believe in the free market, but I believe the free market has to be, there has to be some guardrails to it. I agree. agree. And, you know, especially, you know, I I would push back a little bit again on, on that. If you come to California, for example, you have a lot of people in California that probably would fall into that category that you say of, you know, they're willing to do jobs that Americans won't do. And it's like, okay, that that's fine. But if you look at the people in California, you have a lot of people working in the garment industry. You have a lot of people working in, you know, fast food. You have a lot of people working in um, construction, right? You have a lot of people working in industries that are a lot of manual labor that traditionally have been high paying trades, right? I think you have to add another part to that and to say that a lot of these people are doing jobs that Americans won't do for the prevailing wage. Right. So, you know, I, I refuse to believe that most legal citizens won't work construction that, you know, I refuse to believe that they won't be carpenters or they won't be plumbers or they won't be electricians. Um, you know, so I don't know that there are that many jobs that are in that category of, you know, Americans just won't do them at any price. But even then, I still don't think that's an excuse to allow people to come into the country illegally simply because we don't know who they are. Because, I mean, we're not, we're not even talking about people from, you know, terrorist countries, which that's all, that could be a whole other show. Right. You know, we're primarily talking about people from Mexico and, and South America. But the reality is there are a lot of people that are coming across the border from countries all over the world. Now, the majority are generally for Mexico and Central and South America because they're the closest to the United States. But there are a huge number of people coming from China on visitor visas. Um, and this is one thing that's important to know too is, this is off topic a little bit, but it, it's it's relevant. Let's say someone comes from, let's say Syria or Iran, um, maybe even China, right? There are a lot of people that are being let into the country from countries that have no background system whatsoever, right? 
know, Syria has unfortunately been in a war. Uh, you know, Cuba has its own issues. Iran is a huge supporter of terrorism. So if you're a citizen of Iran or Syria and you get to the United States border and you claim fear, the chances of you going back to your country of Iran or Syria are slim to none, right? So once that person crosses the border, they're probably never leaving, right? So when you talk about open borders and you talk about people that are just coming here to work, if you have no restrictions on the border, you're going to get those people from those countries that want to do us harm, right? It's If you're not going to filter out anyone with the border, you're going to get that. And we know from 9-11, it was 12 people, 12 men that killed 5,000 people on a single day and caused the United States to, to start two wars and all the other people that died years after the fact from cancer because they were, they went to the twin towers. So, you know, that's something that's not talked about either is that we have to, we have to realize that it's not just poor people crossing the border that want to work. I mean, yes, it's a lot of them. There's no doubt, but you know, I always give the example of if, if I gave you a bottle of aspirin that had a thousand pills in it, and I said, one of those pills in there is a cyanide pill, and you don't know which one it is, right? But it's going to kill you instantly. It's a one in a thousand chance, right? Are you going to take one of those pills? You know, or if it was 2,000, one in 3,000, right? You know, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, what we have to weigh the risk versus reward. And we want to be, we want to be, welcoming we want to help people as best as we can but at the same time the system we have now of open borders everyone gets in has so many negative consequences to it you know like i said the cartels are making money these these companies in the united states are making money and we don't know who's crossing the border right because essentially they're showing up to the border and they're being let in and we don't know who they are and so it's it's more than just you know i i know i'm kind of going off topic a little bit but I bring it up because it's important and it's, it's one of the things that you have to take into consideration when you talk about immigration, it's, you, you can't separate the two. It, it's really, it's really difficult all around. Yeah. And I understand that. That's why I broke it down to, into separate containers, so to speak, because I will make one quick comment on the, um, going back to the one about the, the workers who are coming here. And I, you know, I do think that our society in education is geared for, for, uh, people to learn, uh, even when they learn trades, is to be more about the the entrepreneur or the manager, but the actual you know labor in 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 knee knee high mud, you know hand picking mm-hmm. things and and in dangerous conditions is, is you know that's not usually a, a um a job that many people who come through this education system you know want to do, right? Um, well- the other thing that I wanted to touch on that uh, someone spoke to me about, and I want to make sure I uh, capture it before we wrap up, is so I think I mentioned this to you before when we were chatting. Someone who has been in the country or came to the country many years ago, mm-hmm. at a time when the, the 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 controls and the security mechanisms that are in place now, even with the social security administration or not, and they could somehow get a green, get a social security card with a fictitious number to work. And so they've been living here for many years and paying taxes using that number. Mm -hmm. 
and they are now trying to, you know, after all these years to get their immigration status in order, what do they do? Well, <laughs> that's a very difficult situation. Um, and I, I have to preface this by saying I am not an attorney and I am not giving <laughs> legal advice by any means. So please, anyone listening, um, I'm not a lawyer. Please make your own decisions. Um, but that's a difficult situation because the person you're describing came into the country, you know, illegally or they overstayed a visa. Um, and they're using someone else's social security number. No, right? not someone else's. This well, was, how did they get their social security number? They got the social security number that was generated. I mean, I know I've, I've known, I've been here, you know, maybe 40 years. I've heard of many situations where people were able to speak for some, uh, speak to individuals within the social security administration, and then they would generate a number for them. Well, so if, okay, that's a little different. My, my preface is still the same. It's not yeah. legal advice, but let me say this. If the Social Security Administration gives a Social Security number legitimately to a person that was not born in the United States, then it was given to them for a particular reason. Now, if it was a temporary reason, let's say they came in as a temporary worker and they were allowed to remain in the United States for two years and they stayed for 20, but they kept working. Right. And they kept paying on that number. I know it's not a popular thing to say, but if you have no legal status and you're working in the United States, that is a deportable offense. Right. And if you're paying taxes on a number that is not to be that was not supposed to be used for labor past a certain date, that is another crime. Now, it's not the worst thing in the world, but by law on paper, you know, it's, it is against the law. Right. So. So there's no path for them. I, well, I don't want to say there's no path. And this is, this is again, maybe where Congress has failed. And this is, this is why I blame Congress for most of what's wrong with the immigration system. Congress has haphazardly written, <clears throat> excuse me, haphazardly written waivers into immigration law over the years. So there is a potential. Now, let me, let me say this too. Every immigrant's case, whether they're legal or illegal, every immigrant's case has its own set of circumstances. So like I said, this is just in general, right? But the one thing I would suggest, and I always say this, is go to the CIS office first, right? Citizenship and Immigration Services. Because... It's no secret under President Biden, nobody's getting deported, right? So, you know, if you show up to CIS and you overstayed your visa, they're not going to call ICE, right? They're not going <laughs> to not going to call, call Border Patrol. You can go to the CIS office and talk to someone who can give you advice on what options you have to adjust your status, right? So that would be the first step because you want to go to CIS first because they are the ones that actually handle immigration papers. Now you may have to pay a fee. There may be some documents you have to, to, to fill out, right? But the fees that you pay to the U S government 
are a few hundred dollars, maybe, depending on, on your situation. Now, what a lot of people do first is they go to an attorney. And I hold immigration attorneys in very low regard because I have personally seen immigration attorneys exploit immigrants for tens of thousands of dollars for no reason, right? I've seen them take advantage of people that are U.S. citizens because they essentially just wanted to keep the payroll um, <laughs> the payroll up. So I hold immigration attorneys in very low regard. Now, there are some good ones, but the problem is when you go to an immigration attorney, they're going to tell you everything you want to hear because they know what the law is and they know what your circumstance is and they can tell within five minutes whether or not you qualify for anything. But most, I should, well, be careful what I say, but there are a lot of immigration attorneys that will milk people for all they're worth. And then once they realize they have no more money, they'll just simply walk away, wash their hands and say, yeah, have a nice day. See you later. So a lot of times going to an immigration attorney can make it worse and they clean out your pockets. So every case is different, but CIS would be the place to go because there may be waivers. There may be different visas. There may be a way to adjust status. And that's the, the legal term is adjusting status, right? So the CIS office would be the ones to help you with that process and tell you what you qualify for. Now, if the, the reality is a lot of people may not qualify, right? There may not be, depending on their circumstance, you know, there may not be a Any straight line way to right. adjust status. Now, a lot of times, you know, um, you say this too, depending on the original circumstance of the person, it could be something as simple as leaving the country, going to the American embassy and saying, yeah, I'm in my home country. I would like to apply for this adjustment of status, right? A lot of people don't like to hear that, but because they figure they when can't they get back in. They figure something will happen well, and they won't get back in. But but here's the thing. If you're entitled to if you are entitled to adjust your, your status, a lot of times in a lot of situations, when you're in the country illegally, by law you're not allowed to adjust because you are in violation of immigration law, right? But once you leave, right, now because you're not in the country illegally anymore, you have the option to adjust status. Now, in some situations, there are waivers for that, right? So that's why I said, I'm, I'm not an attorney. <laughs> you know, please check CIS first because everybody has a different circumstance. But removing yourself from the country a lot of times will allow you to get back in quicker, right? So it's a complicated answer because everybody has different circumstances. But I would say, you know, like I said, CIS first and be open to all your options and don't just go to an attorney that says, pay me $20,000 and I'll get you your citizenship in six months. You know, don't go to the person that promises you the world yeah. and ask for a ton of money because, you know, I, and all the people that I've, I've talked to, I've always tried to be as fair and unbiased as possible, regardless of what their past was. Right. And I've, I've always tried to treat people with empathy and really the way I wanted to be treated, you know, and immigration attorneys don't do that <laughs> for the most part. They, they work for money. Right. So that's, that's my word of caution. Um, yeah, I think that is a, you know, that is um, actually a great word of caution to end the show on. Um, 
coming up in about an hour, and I know that we could continue going for another few hours because um, there's still some unanswered questions I have in my mind, but I know that it's a, it's a complicated issue, and mm-hmm. each um, each person has you know circumstances that are similar and different, and you know the questions, the fact that people have immigration questions daily after so many um, answers have been given just shows you how many differences there are in the scenarios. Um, exactly, that, and that's why you have to CIS, cis.gov, the place to go, and most everything you see in the media, most everything you see in the news is a weird um, variation of the truth. So please go to CIS to to get the straight answer. Yes, thank you. With that, I'll say thank you so much, Winston, for um, not only Billy being willing to be a guest on 247 Real Talk, but for having this very genuine and eye-opening conversation. I suspect that uh, many of of my audience uh, will have a lot of questions that I'll probably be uh, funneling back to you. So, you know, maybe there's another episode in this somewhere along the line. Um, but it's been a pleasure not only having this conversation with you, but learning a few things from myself. So thank you so I, much I for so. joining the show. You're welcome. It's, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you. Please stay on the line. say a very special thank you to my guest Mr. Winston Taylor for all the insightful information that he provided on a very contentious and very difficult topic I hope that the listeners out there who need this advice or feel empowered by this advice will listen and will go to CIS for their needs their immigration needs I want to say a very special thank you as always to my supporters reminding you that you can listen to the this episode and every episode of 247 Real Talk on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to send me a message, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, if you'd like to make comments about this or any episode, you can email me at podcast at 247realtalk.net. That's podcast at 247realtalk.net. Until the next time, and as always, be good to yourselves and each other.